Welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Richard Hanania, president of the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology and a fellow at Defense Priorities. He's just put out a book published by Routledge called Public Choice Theory and the Illusion of Grand Strategy, How Generals, Weapons Manufacturers, and Foreign Governments Shape American Foreign Policy. Richard, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So first, I want you to just give us a sense of the main argument in your book. Why do you think grand strategy is an illusion? So I have a background in international relations. I mean, it was my my PhDs in political science with the international relations focus, and I've been reading on the topic even longer than I've been uh, studying it uh, in uh, in the academy. And you know, I just always like since my first international relations class up until now, I've always felt very uncomfortable with the way that we talk about it because I'm also a political scientist, so I know a bit about American politics. I do reading in economics and, and other fields, and it just seems like the way we talk about international relations is just so inconsistent how we th- with how we think about government policy uh, more generally. So we say, you know, the U.S. has a grand strategy, right? It, it, it seeks to achieve primacy. It seeks to, uh, you know, uh, defend the rules ba- uh, rules based international order. You know, what, what what have you? And people debate, and whether people like American foreign policy or they don't like American foreign policy, you know, they all they always assume that there's a strategy. There's something, you know, that unites um, different parts of American foreign policy. So I, I guess I have to probably define grand strategy. And the most common way people define it is basically it's your uh, your military, your uh, diplomatic, and your economic ends working towards the same goal, right? And this sort of makes sense in you know like World War II or something, right? The diplomacy, the the military strategy, and the economics, you know, they were they were all pretty much in accord with beating uh, Germany and Japan. So in certain contexts, it, it does make sense. Now, when we we think about other aspects of American foreign policy, American uh, policy more generally, we don't think in these terms. Nobody would say, "What's our grand?" strategy for for healthcare everyone understands that the healthcare system was built through you know a series of compromises and a series of incremental steps um, that people based on decisions that politicians made at, at a particular point same thing with immigration I, I talk about uh, immigration policy the unintended consequences basically nobody thought we'd get the immigration policy we have today but you know we passed it we passed a law um, in the 1960s and we've updated it a bit but basically that, that that's our immigration policy there was no no grand strategy here and and I think that the closer you look at foreign policy, it's it's if it is special, it's even less planned and less um, less rational than other areas of policy. We usually think it's more there's more of a grand strategy, and I think people base that on the idea that there's a uh, there's a president and there's sort of at least you know the the executive branch has a lot of control. But I, if you look at the specifics of American foreign policy, it looks more like domestic policy. It looks more like improvisation. It looks more like uh, uh, concentrated interest, defending what they have and, and trying to gain more advantage, whether whether in the terms of budgets, whether in terms of uh, uh, financially, um, and so th- that's that's what the book is about. The book, you know, it's a, it's got an academic chapter where I go into uh, the international relations literature and I say, you know, why pe- you know that's not like every international relations scholar has sort of like a cartoonish, you know, very simplified version of foreign policy. But I do argue that it sort of uh, undergirds the entire field. That basically to to justify international relations 
needs as a, as a field, you need the unified actor model. Um, without it, it's just it's just like any other area of politics. It's just it's just a political economy or political uh, political science. And so I, I, I discuss the academic literature. I, I say why I, where I basically differ with it theoretically, and then the book goes basically different important aspects of American foreign policy, like how we've uh, how we've uh, responded to rising powers, um, the sanctions regime, um, the war on terror, and you know other things here here and there. So that that's basically that's the outline of the book. You write that both primacy and liberal internationalism, which are two grand strategies that the United States has been variously described as pursuing, um, are labels put on a collection of policies that are not primarily motivated by geopolitical goals. Explain that a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, you have to ask, you know, they say we have these grand strategies. Do they make that sense on their own terms? Now, you can you can build a story. Anything government does, you can go back and say, well, it was a strategy to do this or that. So so basically, but you have to ask if it's really a strategy. I mean, does it, it, are there like holes in this theory? If someone's strategy is to, you know, get to the store and they're not driving to the store, they're going in a completely different directions. You'd say, you know, that doesn't make sense. That's probably not what their strategy is, even if they say so. So you take these two that I think are most Commonly seen as uh, the uh, the main American uh, uh, grand strategy, and I don't think either one of them makes sense. I, so the idea that the U.S. Uh, upholds the you know rules based international order, I mean, I, I'm just I'm surprised that people can say this. I mean, the U.S. the the basically the entire basis of international law, like the reason there was an international law, why it was uh, created centuries ago, was to deal with the problem of interstate aggression. The idea that countries do not you know invade one another. Yeah, other other things today like human rights and all that. I I mean that is a very very late innovation, very controversial. Whether you know things like you know uh, uh, responsibility uh, to protect are even part of international law, or whether they're just you know subversions of it. So if you take don't invade other countries, and the U.S. says this too, the U.S. doesn't uh, say you know we're okay with invading other countries, right? When other countries uh, threaten to invade others or do invade others, we we denounce it as much as possible and put sanctions on the country and and, and so on. And so if you start with the idea that international law is the idea that you don't invade other countries before it's anything else, um, the U.S. invades more countries than everybody else in the world put together in the last uh, 20, 30 years, or longer than that, I mean, since the beginning of the Cold War. Um, yeah, Lindsay O'Rourke has uh, looked at the Cold War, and she's basically found something like 60, 65 uh, cases of covert re regime change. Putting aside the overt regime change, the Libya and Iraq, and you know the attempt at the regime change in Syria. Um, so it really, I mean, it's just, a, it's just very hard to see how, you know, what rule, what consistent rules the U.S. is applying. Now people will say, okay, that makes sense. Um, but the strategy is uh, primacy. That The strategy is that the U.S. is going to be the, you know, the dominant power in the world. I think there's a little bit, uh, there's a little bit more truth to that. Um, but the, the the rise of China really doesn't make sense in that context, how the U.S. treated the rise of China, at least. You know, I think China was going to rise inevitably. I don't think it was, it was up to the U.S. to decide to allow that to happen or not. Um, but there wasn't even an attempt or serious thought about how to stop it at any par particular point until very, very recently, um, after which point, you know, China's already, uh, by some measures, the largest economy in the world. Um, so I don't think that, I don't think that makes sense either. I mean, the idea 
was that basically people explain that by going back and saying, well, China's going to, you know, the, the idea was that China would become a, uh, you know, a democracy if U.S. traded with it and brought it into the international system. Uh, it still really doesn't make sense because it would still be bigger and stronger than the United States. So like, just because it's a democracy, well, you know, why would you believe that in the first place? But, you know, even if you do believe that, the, the question is, well, you know, that's also inconsistent with a, with a, a, a worldview where you hang on to, um, where you just hang on to the top spot and that's the entire point. I mean, it's good. I mean, it's good that U.S. does not try to stop other countries from rising economically. I think that that would be a uh, that would be a tragedy, uh, humanitarian and for, and for the national interest. But but still, I mean, the point is that there's not you know they don't do that, and it's good that they don't do that. But there's no uh, you know I don't think there's uh, like a larger strategy there. Um, the um, you know and th- this is not to say there aren't people in the American government who think along these terms. So somebody will uh, uh, point to like some article by Brzezinski or some article by Paul uh, Paul Wolfowitz at some point, and it you know it'll say something it'll it'll sound like a grand strategy, right? And of course there are people within the government and outside the government who have ideas. You just have to look at the foreign policy as a whole and say, despite whatever any one particular person's uh, intentions were at any one point, um, is this you know is the is the behavior of the whole the military, the diplomatic, the economic tools are they all pointing in the same direction? Are they pointing towards some consistent goal uh, in accordance with one of these theories? And I think generally the answer is no. Right. And you use public choice theory as a way to explain those inconsistencies. And we'll get that to that in a second. But um, first, as you said at the outset, I think the first part of understanding uh, why grand strategy in a, is an illusion, according to you, is to scrutinize this unitary actor model. Explain that model and how it's integrated into IR theory and what its shortcomings are. Sure. So the unitary actor model, I mean, if anybody has an economics background or a studied economics or a rational choice, basically, you know, the, the, the fundamental basis of rational choice is you have an actor and an actors making, uh, you know, decisions and they're, they're in a situation with other actors and they have to plan accordingly, right? Um, or not even plan accordingly. You have rational choice models in nature with, with animals and, you know, uh, you know, with, uh, different, you know, so it's just, it's just about a system and it's about, uh, it's about the idea that there, are, you get down to the individual. That's, that's the, whatever the individual, Unit is whether it's a person or an organism or or whatever um, that you start from there and then you build you build based on that idea the based on the idea that they're in interaction with other uh, similar agents and they basically have a strategy that's directed towards a, accomplishing a goal. Now this works in economics. You say the basic unit of analysis is the individual. So you say you know when the prices goes up or the price goes down of something you know what what, what do individuals do? And so the unitary actor model and this is the, the sort of the basis of international relations is the idea that we have this thing called international relations, which is a science because we can think of states in this way. So the U.S. wants X and Russia wants Y, and we, you know, we can draw we can draw a uh, prisoner's dilemma uh, table, and we can look at their sort of decisions, and we can look at sort of their decisions and how they interact with each other, and how are they thinking about the other side. This is not completely useless. I mean, I think it works sometimes. It works, you know, in crisis situations. It works in probably in in, in total wars, you know, like World War II. Probably not in the Iraq War. I mean, because it's just like you know, it's like like the hundredth, you know, most important thing the, go- the government is thinking about at any one particular point. It's not the str- it's not a winning Iraq is not the most important thing. Usually, they're just trying to um, well, it was for Bush, but but less so for the uh, for his uh, successor. And you know, even Bush didn't care really about Afghanistan. Um, so basically, what. Uh, 
what in these sort of wars of choice, what governments are doing, what the U.S. government is doing most of the time is just trying to, you know, just trying to sort of keep it out of the headlines, not not suffer any political damage, get a victory uh, where they can. Uh, so you have to think, you have to think, you know, so to believe the unitary actor model um, that it applies to states, you have to believe that the state acts as a, you know, as a unitary actor. And in every other area, you know, where we think about government action, we don't think like that. We understand that government is about institutions and it's about bargaining and it's about concentrated interests, um, overcoming uh, diffuse diffuse interests. And that's like sort of the fundamental, probably the fundamental insight of uh, public choice theory. Um, so I just think that this is just, this is just a better model. I go into the uh, arguments why you would think um, the unitary actor model might work for international relations. Um, John Mersheimer uh, sort of touches this a little bit, though he doesn't, uh, he's not very explicit with it, but basically he argues that nationalism can be one explanation. Um, Kenneth Waltz, uh, you know, they're very, they're careful to say that it's not necessary for their theories, but they sort of, you know, they, they, they point to it and say, this is one reason why we might expect countries to behave um, as unitary actors. You know, I, I, I don't think, I don't think nationalism, you know, explains that much. I mean, the na nationalism is, is a strong political force compared to other things. People will vote based on um, nationalism. They'll, they'll say, we want to keep the immigrants out, or we want to, uh, uh, or, you know, we want to, um, you know, uh, only trade with our own country and put up tariffs. Um, but is nationalism, you know, a huge motivating force compared to, say, self-interest or like familial interest or uh, financial interest? No, not really. That's why people don't voluntarily, you know, buy buy goods that are made in America. That's why they have to, they have to vote for politicians who, who, uh, who uh, place tariffs on goods, right? Um, so, yeah, I, I think that nationalism is a thing and it, it is a motivator of human behavior to a certain extent. Um, I don't think it's enough to overcome self-interest. And if you have a, a model of self-interested actors, then the unitary actor model at the level of states doesn't make sense because the bureaucracy is in it for himself, the president's in, the, in it for himself. The voters are, you know, in it for themselves, probably rationally irrational. Um, and so that, you know, and so I, I think that the more seriously you actually take the unitary actor model uh, in political economy, and game theory and economics, the less seriously you you take it, or the less you know, the less faith you put it uh, put into it for understanding international relations. And my observation, it's actually usually the opposite. Like a lot of like Cato is unique because you guys, you know, you believe in uh, markets, but you're also um, you're also sort of skeptical of American foreign policy. But but the norm is for those who believe in markets to be more you know believing in a, a grand strategy and sort of an overarching American foreign policy. And I think even at the academic level, I, I think there was there was a paper. Actually, that showed um, uh, people who were into uh, rational choice models for international relations, international relations scholars were more likely to be friendlier to markets. And you say, oh, there's a superficial re resemblance there. You know, they, they like this sort of analysis, this way of looking at the world. Um, but I think to, to buy the unitary actor model, to buy the rational actor model at the state level, um, means you have to sort of do a little bit of hand waving and brush it aside for uh, for understanding uh, the rational, for using the rational actor model to understand individuals. And I'm, uh, you know, I, I, I just think. There's a contradiction there, so this is why I I I buy it for economics. I buy it for rational choice. I taught game theory. I, I think that that's a useful um, useful uh, sort of way to understand the world um, in, in a lot of ways. Uh, but I just not international relations. When people study Congress, it's not uncommon to use the public choice perspective, right. um, and some might say, well, the executive branch is a kind of 
real life version of this, even though uh, it's, it doesn't come down to one person, it's not that simple. People argue that you can use the unitary actor model with respect to the executive branch and thus foreign policy slash grand strategy. Explain that why the executive branch itself doesn't count as a, a unitary actor. Yeah. This, so this is, I mean, this is sort of a clever way to get around um, the problem that I just highlighted. You know, Dustin, Dustin Tingley is a professor at Harvard that gets, gets around this. And the idea is that basically, okay, the president, he's, he's an individual, right? He's head of the executive branch. The executive branch works more, you know, in a unified way than say, uh, Congress does. Um, and the president, you know, his, his interest is to have uh, you know good policy and to get reelected and and so on. So you know he's going to act like a rational actor in, in foreign policy. Um, you know I I think that well there's a few things there's a few things uh, here that I th- that uh, that I think we, sh- we should think about. Uh, first of all, the the president changes right. So if you say you know if there's a if there's a uh, grand strategy with every administration, um, is that really a, is it really a grand strategy? Maybe, but you'd have to define it in a very very short term. So Bush. Bush comes in, he has a freedom agenda. Obama, you know, has his sort of liberal internationalist belief, so has some continuation with that, but nothing, nothing sort of like what the Bush administration was doing overseas. And, and Trump is something uh, different, uh, different completely. Um, the other, the other thing is the president is actually constrained quite a bit. Um, he can use force, and and and, and Tingley and um, uh, Tingley and, uh, is, is co-author. They uh, they admit this. Uh, Milner, uh, they they admit this because they say basically they, this is their explanation. Of for why American foreign policy is so militarized, in that the president has control over the military and can just bomb, you know bomb or even invade a country, uh, sort of just basically at will. Um, but the you know the he can't change economic policy at the drop of a hat, right? He it can in some ways. He can uh, he has some discretion on some things, um, but to a large extent he doesn't. He has more control over the military um, than other things. So the, the, so the definition of grand strategy, if we go back to you know unified military, diplomatic, and economic effort to achieve the same goals then just to define it as sort of control over the military it takes out a lot and so when you look at the, from the broader uh from the broader picture I think that the the fact that the president's constrained I think we saw that um during uh the Trump administration where Trump every time he he had some instincts that were against um uh that were sort of uh, skeptical of American uh, foreign policy commitments I mean putting aside the resistance within his own administration resistance within the bureaucracy which was particularly strong um Congress would push back when he wanted to pull out of uh, Syria, you know, whenever he would say something about NATO, uh, you know, Congress would take votes and, you know, it never got to the point where they had to overrule him because they would have these votes that were almost unanimous in the Senate and the House. And they would say, you know, we we affirm, you know, the, the commitment to NATO, we affirm the U.S. mission in Syria. And then he didn't even, I mean, he didn't even tr- really try to do the things, a lot of the things that he wanted to do. So, yeah, I think it's a clever way to try to salvage something from the rational choice model. and But I, I don't think it goes far enough to salvage what people actually mean when they talk about grand strategy. Okay. So your basic argument is that grand strategy, which is this idea of a long-term strategy that will guide a country's foreign policy, which is a narrower concept throughout various administrations. And you're saying that there are inconsistencies in the way the strategy is implemented and a better explanation for this 
for what the driving forces behind U.S. foreign policy are is uh, a set of concentrated interests that uh, work hard to influence U.S. foreign policy. Um, so instead of the grand strategy, it's really these interests. And you point to the defense industry, the national security establishment, and foreign governments. Talk about how these three groups influence our foreign policy. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, a uh, fundamental, I mean, uh, insight for public choice. I mean, maybe the most important insight. I don't know if there's a, there's a better insight, uh, from there, but basically if you have concentrated interests and on one side and diffuse interests on the other, the concentrated interests usually win because, you know, they have a incentive to act on their, on their preferences. So if there's a tariff or something, it's going to help some industry. And if you're going to uh, have free trade, it's going to help, you know, basically the entire country, everyone who's, everyone who is a consumer, um, you know, even if, even if the consumers get more and the in the aggregate, uh, the um, the concentrated interests are going to have a better uh, chance of influencing policy. They're just going to have the motivation to organize whatever the avenues for influencing policy um, happen to be. And so, in in the U.S. in U.S. For, uh, forward policy, the big one is defense contractors. I mean, these uh, these uh, the biggest contractors are from the are our military contractors. Some of these businesses they they depend um, almost uh, exclusively on, on their entire revenue from the government. Um, so you. Know, companies like uh, Ray Raytheon and Lockheed Martin um, and you know a lot of lot of smaller countries the, the smaller companies that are uh, that are similar just completely depend on government their, their entire existence depends on a large military budget and you know they figured out what to do I mean not just um, donating to uh, presidential campaigns or donating to congressional uh, campaigns political scientists have written about how basically they spread out the uh, the, the factories that make these um, that make these weapon systems to be as you know to be in so many places as possible to build broad support, but I think that I think the big thing is they what they do is I think they they basically they hire the executive branch upon retirement. So there was just an amazing uh, Boston Globe report that showed basically all or almost all of uh, three and four star generals that are retiring in the last uh, decade, decade and a half are going to work for some kind of industry or, or defense contractor. And so these and these people also I mean they they fund uh, they fund think tanks, they fund uh, you know uh, intellectuals, intellectual movements. A lot of uh, one you know one story. Uh, uh, that, that's amazing is a, a project for a new American century. People just see it as sort of this ideological movement that just came out of somewhere and people, you know, believed something and they wanted to do something. I mean, it was so intertwined with Lockheed Martin. I mean, I think one of their former executives um, was actually instrumental in, in, found, in founding it. And that and that sort of goes under the radar. It's not as easy to, uh, it's not as easy to see as com campaign distributions. A lot of the people, so people sometimes will talk about ideas and ideas are important, um, but ideas are, you know, the ideas that get funded tend to be the ones that um, are consistent with the beliefs and the preferences of uh, of concentrated interests. Um, and then, so the, so this is what this is one uh, this is one concentrated interest. You have the you have the uh, defense contractors. You have the you have the bureaucracy itself. And bureaucracies just naturally want uh, bigger budgets. They want more power. Um, the military uh, budget's always uh, is always basically going up. Um, Less you know since the end of the Cold War, there was a little bit of a drop, but basically been going up. And if you include the um, the the supplemental um, spending on the on the major post 9/11 wars, um, you know that's that's there, and they're intertwined because it's good for the bureaucracy to have the budgets, and then the bureauc 
bureaucracy is often rewarded in the private sector uh, once once they leave uh, once they leave government. And so you see this. I mean, you see this one like when you know you whenever you read a news story, if you just read basically the international uh, foreign policy reporting in the Washington Post or the New York Times or Wall Street Journal, um, it's often nothing but you know anonymous sources. And uh, you know every time you read the story, you you know you take the journalist seriously and you, you assume they're not they're not lying to you. But you know the, there's always a question of why this particular information is coming out now and why, you know, sometimes they are, I mean, sometimes they are wrong. I mean, sometimes the reflection is wrong, but it's even when it's right. You ask, why is this piece of information uh, coming out now? And who was the, you know, who, what was the agenda of the person talking to? Because it's not like they just looked up a report, you know, on some website and are just reporting to you like you might in other areas of journalism. Somebody gave the information, gave the access to that particular journalist at that particular time to report. And sometimes it's classified, right? And then so people like Assange will likely classified information and they will have given all kinds of legal trouble. You know, the, all the foreign policy reporting in New York Times and Washington Post is classified information. It's never, you know, it's never prosecuted in, in those cases. And maybe it should, maybe it shouldn't be, but there's clearly an inconsistency depending on sort of your, uh, your outlook and your sort of institutional position. Um, and so you have the, and you know, and you know, the other, I mean, the other thing, I mean, the bureaucracy just has a lot of ways they could slow walk things that, you know, the president wants to do or the leadership wants to do. Um, it's easy, the easiest thing in the world just, just to go along, get along. And, and I think that a lot of presidents do that. That's the problem with, um, uh, relying on the president to overcome it because the actors within and outside the system are good at creating costs whenever the, uh, the, the, the person on the top, uh, wants to do something that they don't like. Um, and then, you know, the influence of foreign governments, I think. It's it's clear we've seen that. I mean the uh, the influence of, of the Saudis. I mean nobody can really explain why uh, the U.S. was um, supporting the uh, the war in Yemen. Um, especially, and then during the Trump administration, the, the support for the Saudis just became, you know, more extreme. Uh, same with the, the the Emirates, the other uh, Gulf monarchies. Uh, the Israelis obviously have had a large influence. Mersheimer and Walt uh, uh, have written about this. Um, you know, one, one other thing that people don't. Um, you know, there's a Taiwan lobby. I mean, this is a, this is an old this is an old thing too. That's always it's always been there. And it's interesting because we get you know, and sometimes you get non-governmental actors uh, like the MEK, um, who is you know, and then the Ahmed Shalabi, who was pretty big in pushing for the Iraq War. Um, you know, you have the the sanctions regime, which is another part of the book. But the you know, and you basically the some some foreign governments can't spend money in the U.S. Uh, and some can. So like you know, why is the U.S. friends with the Gulf states but enemies with Iran? I mean, if Iran could spend money in in America the way the Saudis could, I think we probably have a much more balanced uh, uh, approach to the Middle East. And then you can you cut out the Iranian regime, and then you just have these like this cult that tells you they're going to overthrow you know the Iranian government, the MEK, and they're you know they're actually well regarded in Washington, particularly on the political right. Um, and it was the same thing with Shelby. I think another you know another interesting thing uh, is um, uh, uh, like uh, another unique thing is, is NATO. I mean, you see the lobby, the open lobbying from uh, the heads of NATO now, especially on like bringing Ukraine into NATO. I mean, they're they're you go to their social media. I mean, they're 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 full time. They have a you know like they have a, a pretty slick PR uh, operation there and you're you're just like, like what like what is this it's just like an alliance that the US is why is it making videos about how important it is and how great its mission is and and all you know and, and like you know this has to stand with this country or that country even the ones that are not in the alliance it, it's really a very, a, you know a very strange thing but these are these are all avenues of influence i mean ultimately nato's mission and funding and everything else depends on the united states 
So I want to give you a, a chance to kind of expand on the nuances in this argument, because this is a classic public choice analysis. Uh, it's very well supported in your book and in other places. Um, but it's also distinct from a kind of crude Marxist uh, analysis where groups selfishly pursue their interests and then um, lie about their motivations. Um, uh, but there's cognitive biases here, there's socialization. Uh, talk a, a little bit about that nuance here. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I, I mean, ideas, you can't say that ideas don't matter. And it's not, a, you know, what you say, what you call a crude Marxist analysis. It's, uh, you know, the, the, I think one thing that separates this from a Marxist analysis, often Marxist analysis are focused on economic classes. And I think what Mankur Olson, uh, the great uh, public choice theorist, I think what, what he showed is that that's, that's too broad. Like there are too many, you know, capitalists or there are too many rich people for them to act in accordance and to, uh, and to uh, push for their own interests. So I, I don't believe in this, you know, the rich want this foreign policy, the middle class wants this foreign policy, the poor want for. I don't think that's supported. I, I think it just, it breaks down if you take rash choice uh, seriously. You have to be pretty con uh, concentrated group. Um, but it is consistent with uh, Marxist analysis. And I think that ideology is to a large extent, you know, a cover for a cover for uh, group interests. And where, but those groups, you know, you have to be very, very careful where you'd see the groups. This is, you know, Olson's insight. So, you know, when you have a, when you have a corporation, uh, which is its entire budget or most of its budget is based on government contracts, like, yeah, that's gonna, you know, they're gonna put, it's, it's no, no more mysterious than a uh, uh, tobacco company trying to fund research on, on lung cancer. Um, everyone understands this in areas outside of uh, uh, foreign policy. And then when you have like, you know, the, the, the fact that the bureaucracy tries to defend its own interests, defend, defend its own budget, I don't think that that's surprising to people either. Um, but I, I think that ideas and interests sort of interact in an important way in that when when the concentrated interests decide to support people, it's not like they micromanage everything they believe. So if you look at something like, so the, it, it, there are unintended consequences of, uh, of this. So if you look at something like, um, if you look at something like the Iraq war, I don't think there was any uh, real, uh, you know, the weapons contractors or anything directly lobbying for that. Um, what what the weapons contractors did do is they supported people like PNAC. They basically created an ecosystem in which certain voices, people, you know, the Wolfowitzes of the world and the Fifes and the, you know, the Boltons of the world, that these people had a lot of influence. Um, and they had influence because they were good, you know, they, they were going to, they were good for uh, the military industrial complex. They were good for these corporations. They were good for the, uh, for the security state. Um, and then 9-11 happens and those people are there and those people aren't just puppets, you know, of the defense contractors or anybody else. Those people have ideas about the way the world works. And the fact that it's those people who are, you know, in positions of power rather than somebody who's anti-war or anti-interventionist, that takes us into, that takes us into Iraq. So a lot of things are like this. I think the, the sanctions regime is, is Sort of like this. I think businesses tend not to like uh, sanctions, um, but when you, you you know usually, I mean, some 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 groups can benefit from them. But broadly, the you know the, the, there's not a there's not tons of lobbying. I don't think that that's what's mostly behind it. Um, but I think I think that a lot of interests do like war and a militarized foreign policy. Um, and the people who like war and militarized foreign policy tend to be more in favor of sanctions. So it's sort of a byproduct of which people. Uh, get ahead in Washington. Um, so it, it, a lot of things are like this and it's not, you know, it's not like the ideas don't matter, you know, but there's, you know, the, you also have to, you always have to think that there 
there are a lot of people with a lot of different ideas. There are people who are interventionists, there are people who are socialists, there are people who are anti-war. Why are these people? Why is it the same people always on MSNBC, always filling up uh, uh, presidential administrations, getting jobs at Heritage Hudson? It's not like they're the only people with ideas. You have ideas, I have ideas, Cato has ideas, people with anti-interventionists have a lot of people with, with good ideas and qualifications. Um, the question is why certain people with ideas get places and certain people don't. And I think the public choice model can explain that. You point to uh, U.S. economic policies towards the USSR as an example of uh, how economic policies often contradict strategy. Can you talk a little bit about that history? Yeah, I mean the history. The history is very interesting. So I go into uh, from the basically the establishment of the Soviet Union until uh, FDR recognizes the Soviet Union in 1933, and you you know you, you can look at like different aspects of American policy, and you could see you know they're doing things that are completely different. So the U.S. doesn't recognize the Soviet Union. Um, it doesn't recognize it until again 33 because you know the Nazi Germany is rising and then and sort of uh, Roosevelt's taking a broader sort of geopolitical perspective. Um, but but if, uh, you know. At the start, the U.S. is horrified by by Bolshevism. I mean, the people uh, in the Wilson administration and his uh, successors, they you know they think they think that this is you know basically the end of the world, and so they don't um, they don't establish any uh, uh, you know they don't establish diplomatic context. At the same time, uh, Amer American capitalists are basically building the Soviet Union. I mean, they're basically going over there. They're getting these giant government contractors. I have you know figures in the book. Uh, there was there's basically no uh, Soviet industry without Western, particularly American. American uh, technological transfer. Uh, the, uh, the the history of this period is fascinating. They, you know, there's those commentators who say uh, Henry Ford is a seen as uh, you know as important as Lenin in the Soviet Union because they're you know they're promoting Ford and he's doing he's doing contracts with them. And so there's um and so you know th this is a you know a fascinating sort of forgotten part of our history. And so what's going on here where the U.S. government hates the uh, Soviet Union and is, and is frightened of it potentially becoming a you know becoming a power on the world stage, but American business is basically helping to build. The Soviet Union. There, it, it, it's similar, you know. It's similar to the the China thing. Although the China thing, the U.S. government by that point had a little bit more of a sort of a norm of interfering in markets. Part of it was just there was just like a norm of just not you know doing anything, like letting business, um, you know, letting people transact whatever business they wanted uh, abroad. Uh, but I think I think the point is, you know, the the what people are looking for, what they when they expect a grand strategy, is some kind of concentrated attempt to thwart. Arrival, whether that's China, and you know, starting in the 1990s, whether that's the Soviet Union in the uh, 1910s and 1920s, and we just don't see it. I mean, we see, we see that we see basically the U.S. government let this happen. At the same time, it doesn't like communism. There's a red scare at home. There's you know plenty of evidence that they uh, uh, that they're disturbed by what's going on abroad. Um, but then, but then American businesses the business does com something completely different. So I think this just sort of illustrates how to talk about you know what America is doing at this point or what America. American grand strategy is, um, it's hard to do because there's different factions in America doing different things um, in accordance with you know, their beliefs and interests. I want to zero in on how we actually became militarily involved in Afghanistan to begin with. Uh, most people think the story is simply, you know, they attacked us or harbored people that attacked us and then we invaded in response. And you tease out a story in the book that's um, uh, that gets to some of the specifics and um, uh, is clarifying, especially I want to use this as an opening to talk about uh, U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East generally post 9-11, but talk a little bit about those initial weeks and months uh, with Afghanistan. 
Yeah, sure. So the the uh, you yeah the the idea that people have in their head is basically the U.S. was attacked on nine eleven, and then you know Bin Laden was hanging out in Afghanistan, and the Taliban wouldn't give him up, and we had to go there, and we had to we had to fight, uh, we had to fight them. But you know, if, if you look back at the history of the time, and I mean the political, you know, you and I are uh, old enough to remember the uh, political environment of the time. A lot of you know your listeners might not be at this point, um, but it was basically, I mean, the U.S. You know, it was imagine a president with a ninety percent approval rating with everyone focused on politics. I mean, it was a it was a really just a different time, and I, nobody was questioning much of what Bush was doing. I mean, it, it, it had worn off a little bit by the time of the invasion of Iraq, but he sort of used that sort of, you know, the, the approval rating start, starts out at 90 after 9-11. It starts going down. It's still, you know, it's, he's still riding high, though not as much at the time of Iraq. And, uh, you know, Iraq doesn't happen without sort of the trust and the support that people put in the government after 9-11. So like the days and the weeks after 9-11, um, it's, it's much more extreme than, than uh, you know, March 2003, the invasion of Iraq. Um, and you know bush gets up there and like in the in the you know in the day of 911 or the day after he gets up there and he says basically this is going to be a long war basically says this is going to be a generational struggle and you wonder you know why would you think that you know the day of the attack or the day after you know the people who did it are dead maybe you just go capture the people there's no necessary uh, really no necessary reason why it has to be a grand struggle and um the us doesn't make any attempt to uh negotiate with the taliban to get uh to get bin laden I mean, it says it does, but basically just hands them an ultimatum that would, you know, it's one of those ultimatums where they would have to be, um, you know, they would just basically have to humiliate themselves to to accept it. I mean, it just basically says, you know, you give you give them over, and they say, you know, give us evidence, and they'll say, you know, we, you know, we we have we don't need we don't need to do that. Uh, the U.S. doesn't have to overthrow the Taliban. They don't have to go to Kabul. Um, the Arabs and the uh, you know Al Qaeda, they're they're in the uh, uh, they're in the mountainous uh, southeast of the country, so they can they can just go do they could just go do that, but they don't but they don't do that, right? They they go and they invade uh, Afghanistan. They overthrow the the Taliban. Um, and so what's what's going on? I mean, if you think that they're if you think in terms of grand strategy, it, it, it's it's puzzling. I mean, you can you can go you can have various sort of theories of what's happening. But if you have a public choice perspective, you're just thinking about uh, you know uh, politics. You know, it makes sense. I think I think you know this is difficult to prove because there's not going to be any smoking gun because you're relying on you're inferring sort of what's going on from Bush's actions and the Bush administration's actions. And then you're saying what's consistent with the theory. And in this, you know, and in, in this from this perspective, there's a lot of self-deception. So you're not going to find a government memo that says we go into Afghanistan because it's uh, good politics and it makes me feel good and it keeps the war on terror going, so my approval ratings stay high. But I basically think that that's that's what happened. So you have you know you have this uh, you know the Republicans have always been um, uh, historically I don't know how much it still holds today, but when people are thinking about foreign policy, political scientists have said you know Republicans own that, so it's good for Republicans. Um, so keeping the war on terror, sort of the siege mentality on the front pages is, is a good idea. Um, so you need a war for that. I mean, it's sort of anticlimactic. If, if the Taliban just extradites bin Laden and his you know, henchmen, and then like you go back to like talking about what a gas price is or whatever, I mean, you've really let a, a political opportunities uh, sort of slide there. Um, so you need, you need the Afghanistan war. I think what happened with Iraq, I think Afghanistan was just too easy. I mean, it looked like there was nothing to do in Afghanistan anymore. Um, there were people within the Bush administration uh, uh, like uh, Wolfowitz and Fife, who are pushing Iraq, you know, just just the, the days after the days after the attack, um, you know, Bush eventually goes along with them, and the question is, you know, why does he? And you have to, you know, you, you never get a, you never get an answer. He never like. 
you know, he never, you could read his memoirs. You can look at like, you know, the, what have been uh, written memoirs by other people with the investigative journalism. And you never get the, uh, you never get the idea that this is a very introspective man who sat down one day and said, you know, is, is this the right thing to do for the country? Which you get the impression of as somebody who was caught up in the moment, who had these people sort of whispering in his ear. And I think if you understand Bush and you understand politicians more generally, but I think Bush Bush in particular, as people with good political instincts, but not necessarily the best instincts for, say, making wise foreign policy or building democracy abroad or any of the things they, they say that they're doing, then it sort of makes sense. I think I think there was a sort of drive to keep the war on terror going. Um, I think that they thought this was good politics. It was probably, it may have been. I mean, the Iraq ended up being being a disaster, but like you know, by the time of the November two thousand four election, I think arguably, boy, even though Iraq didn't look good at the time, keeping the um, the terrorism issue front and front and center arguably helped Bush. Um, in 2000, uh, 2002, it was a historical rarity, one of the few times in modern, I think one of you know what, maybe uh, two or three times where the uh, the president's party didn't lose seats in the midterm. Um, the Republicans uh, actually gained in uh, in two thousand two. So keeping the war on terror on the front page, and this was this was in the run up. Iraq, so people get the timeline. You have the election in November 2002. All through 2002, people basically know we're going to go. We're going to go into Iraq. It, it, it's basically understood, and that's the debate. You have this culture war, Dixie chicks, and freedom fries, and all this stuff. And you know, this, this is the focus of the American culture. And in, in the midst of that, you know, Bush does something historically almost unprecedented. You know, he increases his majorities in in Congress, right? Um, so you know, by 2004, you know, arguably the Iraq war is no longer a benefit, but it's at least you know the the run up to the war is a benefit in. Uh, in 2002. Um, and so, the yeah, the war on terror, I mean, it's an interesting case because this is what they thought most about. I mean, most of the time, the president is not thinking about whether to sanction Cuba or, you know, even like, uh, you know, um, uh, you know what, what to do about um, China's relationship with whatever with, with its neighbors. But Iraq and Afghanistan took more time and uh, took more time and attention away from uh, people in higher levels of American government than any other foreign policy issue in the last, you know, since the end of the Cold War. Um, and there's there's no evidence of grand strategy there, and if, we sh- if there's no evidence of grand strategy there, we should be um, we should be skeptical of um, finding it anywhere. I think that you know one of the just the most interesting. I mean, maybe the most interesting part a part about all this is that Bush, one month after they overthrow Saddam, still doesn't know what he's going to do with uh, with Iraq. I mean, this is ever this is uh, everybody's um, uh, recollection. Uh, they say basically, you know, the idea was the neocons wanted to basically just hand it over to Shalabi, get out. You know, to their credit, the neocons at least didn't want to stay. There were the State Department types who did want to stay and nation build, and it looked like at first Bush was just going to lean towards the neocons and just give it to Shalabi and the uh, and the exiles. And then he has a meeting with Paul Bremer, and you know he walks out of it and says, you know, Paul's going to handle it from now on. Paul Bremer goes on this, you know, massive, uh, you know, this uh, he just expands the mission. That's when it gets worse. That's when you see the uh, the insurgency pick up. And by all indications, you know, a month after <laughs> a month after the um, uh, you know this decision is just made sort of on the fly, and it's made after the. I mean, it's not it's not made beforehand. Other people in the government were, you know, trying to push their view. They had different, uh, you know, inclinations or trying to steer the government in a certain direction. But the decision wasn't actually made by all indications again until a month after the invasion. If that doesn't tell you that there's no grand strategy here, you know, I, I, I don't know what will. Unless unless somebody can find evidence that there was, you know, the, that it's not what it looks like, which is what 
what it looks like from the outside looking in and from the memoirs of people on all sides of it. I mean, you can look at Doug Feith's memoirs. You can look at uh, who, who didn't like this decision, who didn't like the nation building. Or you can look at Paul Bremer, who's going back and justifying it. Z- Zabeh Khalilzad, who was uh, involved with uh, setting up the uh, uh, the interim Iraqi government. Um, all these people basically agree on uh, what happened. And the reporting from people like uh, Bob Woodward and uh, uh, Draper, they don't contradict it in any way. They're consistent with that uh, with that story too. So given that, I mean, I think it's just probably the strongest piece of evidence that these people had no idea what they were doing at any point. This might be a tangent, but you've reminded me of one of the other points that you make in your book, which is um, very well taken by me, but I think uh, is a sort of uh, taboo in general in DC, which is that you know the qualities that make one a successful political candidate are not necessarily the qualities that make one a careful and rational steward of long-term grand strategy atop uh, vast, complex institutions. Um, And yet there's this kind of presumption that uh, whatever whatever rigmarole we put uh, political candidates through, is sufficient testing for uh, what they'll then be responsible for. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I, it's something we have to believe because I mean that's that's our system. So it's not like we can have a you know we can just design a new system for electing the president. But for you know, it's worth thinking about. Um, it's worth thinking about what kind of qualities the system selects for. The uh, grand strategy tends to have some idea of long term planning. So you're going to have to forego some benefit today for something tomorrow, right? You're going to have to spend money on the military or put in place economic sanctions or or institute a tariff or whatever because down the line you want to maintain primacy. You or you want to fight this war and you know build up a, a government so you leave behind Iraq or you leave behind Vietnam or whatever country you're occupying and making it better. Um, and then, but the, then the entire political system uh, selects for people who are you know who want to please public opinion, but also are operating on short time scales. You know, two to four years. Either they're looking, they're always you know at least you know they're always one or two years away from a midterm or um, re-election. And so this is you know this is why you know people say that uh, presidents tend to have uh, more flexibility in their in their second term. Sometimes it's true, sometimes it's not. I think when uh, Bush. Um, when he when his approval rating really collapsed at the end, I mean, two thousand six, two thousand seven, before the financial crisis, it was a it was a it was a rock, and I think he doubled and tripled down in Iraq. I think he convinced himself at that point that he was like you know a great world historical figure, you know, building democracy in the Middle East, um, and he could do that because he wasn't up for re-election. I mean, he screwed over McCain basically. He probably was screwed over anyway because of the uh, the economic crash, um, and so the yeah, the, there's no reason at all. I mean, there's good. There's a good reason. I have uh, old professor Mark Trachtenberg who used to say, uh, you know, realism. You might say realism is, you know, you might believe it uh, might have something to it. There are the idea of the unitary actor model because basically people who come to power, um, you know, people who rise to the top of any political system are going to be pe- people who think in terms of uh, gaining and keeping power. And I think that's right, but th- that's gaining and keeping power, um, you know, for yourself at the national level is not the same thing as doing that abroad. You know, like uh, you know, like I said, that. Uh, 
having power abroad could uh, could um, involve some short term sacrifice where you hurt the country in the short term. If you if there was a president who tended to do that, who tended to forego short term gain or hurt himself in the short term for a lo- uh, for a, a long term benefit, um, you know that that person wouldn't do wouldn't do too well in politics. Um, and so you look at these, um, and so you look at the politicians, and you sort of understand like if you took someone who was a really committed ideologue and just pl- plugged them in the Oval Office, you know, there's a thing people say that oh when you get into the Oval Office you're you know you see a new things in a, in a new way. Um, so that's why they end up similarly. So people will say oh Obama was you know against the you know sort of more skeptical of American foreign policy, skeptical of the drone wars. He got into office and um, he expanded the drone war. And you know the but the, but Obama's a politician and Bush is a politician and Trump is a little bit different because he's not you know he, he took a very, such an unusual route that it's hard to generalize uh, from from that experience. Um, but basically, you know that, that doesn't mean that. Anybody would act like this. If me or you was in the Oval Office, I think we'd have a more principled uh, foreign policy. It just means you are probably not going to become president. That just selects for a different kind of person. And we just always have to be sort of aware of that. I want to give you a little bit of chance to expand on something you mentioned earlier, which is sanctions. I should mention you also wrote a Cato policy analysis about this, but you know it's a uh, profoundly ineffective policy tool and yet it's one of the most commonly used. Uh, how does public choice help us understand this problem? Yeah, so the uh, if you understand it's uh, the um the sanctions chapter which is based on like you said the Cato report it's um not it's not exactly you know it doesn't fit public choice as well as a lot of the other chapters because it's not really about concentrated interests it's it's sort of like a very very simplified public choice and if the and if you just think in in the, the sense that you just think of um uh, political leaders as political actors um not necessarily people who are trying to accomplish goals um and so american foreign policy is sort of based, you know, to the extent it's based on any ideas that the, the is the US should be involved everywhere in all times. And it's sort of, you know, it's it's not it's it's not necessarily about um, you know, the rules-based international order, but it's uh, there's just a bias towards action. And that's because of the things we talked about, the uh uh the influence of these concentrated interests. And so when you have that bias towards action, there's a um uh there's always the idea that you should do something. Now, like even, you know, even the even the most hawkish administration doesn't want to go to war every time some country violates human rights or does something that the U.S. doesn't like. They also don't want to do n- nothing, right? Um, so sanctions are are basically the uh, the acceptable option. If you look at American, um, you know, look at some public opinion surveys. If you give people like the option, go to war, do nothing, or do sanctions, people just say, okay, sanctions. I mean, the, the, you know, that's I mean, there's just a bias towards sort of the moderate option. And because going to war, you know, for some countries. Putting sanctions on others would be seen as a really big, you know, big deal. Something very unusual, even for like China or Russia against sanctioning some country on the other side of the world. That's just very unusual and strange. Um, but for the U.S., it's the moderate option, just because our foreign policy is so militarized. Sanctions ends up looking like no big deal. Um, and so you have these. Uh, so you have a lot of sanctions. You have a, a huge sanction regimes, dozens of countries across the world. Um, and there's. You know, there's a political science literature on this. They don't change behavior. Now, some people, they, you know, if you could look for individual cases where you change uh, behavior in a major way, they're very hard to find. Now, I think some some people, uh, like Dan Dresner, say that, um, you know, they 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 deter other people from doing things. So the sanctions on, you know, for example, Cuba or Iran, you know, if so you put sanctions on Iran, maybe it doesn't change Iran's policy. Uh, but whatever country, the next country that's going to be Iran, the next country is going to build nuclear weapons. Like it's like a it's like a criminal justice system where you put people in jail. It didn't deter those people, uh, but other people out 
there, it might it might stop from doing uh, things. Um, you know, this is hard to maybe if if there's some truth to this, it's hard to explain in in practice. Like we've we've been sanctioning uh, uh, Cuba for you know over half a century now. Um, the idea that okay, like we made our point. Like there, there's enough deterrence effect. Any country that has a communist revolution is going to be sanctioned for a, a very long time. Um, and you know, there, there's still you know Obama moved uh, towards um, uh, you know. Uh, 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 lessening those sanctions, the Trump administration moved back in the uh, in the opposite direction, and it doesn't seem like we're really trying to accomplish anything in it with Cuba. It's it, there's nothing, you know. It doesn't seem like there's much that um, the government can do, particularly for any partic- Republican administration in the future. I'd be surprised if they, you know, they ever opened up to Cuba, no matter what Cuba did, other than surrender and say, you know, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna become like you. Um, and so, yeah, if you look, at, I mean, if you look at the policy like this, it's you know, they're they're often, you know. Uh, Disconnected from any foreign policy objectives, they have massive humanitarian costs. I mean, for the you know for the idea that you know the U.S. should be a global leader and you know has a responsibility to humanity abroad. There was estimated of forty thousand dead in one year um, in Venezuela due to U.S. sanctions. Looking at just uh, uh, just uh, uh, data on uh, mor- uh, mortality, um, it's hard to know how much attribute to the sanctions, but the, the, the U.S. but the, how much attribute to the uh, uh, economic policies of Venezuelan regime. But there was a big drop off after the U.S. Uh, economic war. Um, in the last few years, so uh, unquestionably that had a big effect. As incompetent as the Venezuelan government has been for for a while now, and so yeah, I mean, if you understand if you understand sanctions in this way, so this framework of public choice, just you know, just understanding uh, uh, politics as driving American foreign policy, uh, a lot about the sanctions regime makes sense. If you try to look for a grand strategy, you're just going to be consistently puzzled in every case, and you know, so that that's that's the case for the public choice understanding of policy being better. A lot of your argument makes it seem like most of the discourse in U.S. foreign policy is just post hoc rationalizations that are, for the most part, genuinely believed in by the elite classes having the discourse, but they're basically unaware of how the incentives that they face in their particular situation influence the policies and objectives that they pursue. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the post hoc thing, I mean, it's, you can just see it. I mean, so clearly, like in the Afghanistan war, I mean, the, when the, when the discussion was whether the U.S. would pull out, it was about, oh, the humanitarian, the suffering of the Afghan people, we can't abandon them to the Taliban. Now what's going on in Afghanistan? You know, you understand the sanctions in the way that I just explained. It's like, you know, Biden took a hit for leaving Afghanistan. He doesn't want to, you know, recognize the Taliban and, you know, do, Give another so so called victory to the terrorists. Uh, so the U.S. has basically frozen their money and cut them off from the economic system. And the people who were you know complaining about you know I shouldn't say none of the people. I mean the people who are the reporters who are reporting on Afghanistan. They're still keeping their eye on it. And there and you know there been some good reporting in the uh, Washington Post and elsewhere um, about you know the effects of U.S. policy. But basically you know the people who were um, you know State Department a lot of the people who are State Department officials who were generals who were talking about the Afghan people. Those people are gone now. And now you're seeing a massive humanitarian catastrophe. Um, according to aid groups, you know, tens of millions of uh, people are, are, are facing starvation. This was a country completely propped up by American uh, aid, and then we just we just froze all of it. I mean, and then we just and we stopped the Taliban from interacting with other people um, uh, over abroad. So it's really just you know a, a crazy thing to do. Um, and, and the um, and you could I mean you could see how these people's within one war how these people's uh, justifications um, change for any particular. 
particular policy. And you'll see how, you know, the U.S. In, invades a country that, you know, they might oppose it or they might, um, uh, they might not. But then, I mean, the other day you see, uh, you see, uh, Blinken say, you know, about Kazakhstan, once you invite the Russians in, um, you know, they never leave. And I'm just thinking, you know, how, you know, how do they say this with a, with a straight face? There's so much compartmentalization here. They're so, you know, they're so far away from any kind of intellectual, uh, consistency that, yeah, you do have to see it all as postdocs. So, I mean, one of the facts I point out in my book is that um, if you look at the countries with the most uh, American military presence in the last few years, they're Germany, Italy, Japan, uh, South Korea. So the excess powers plus you know the, the Korean the Korean War. The same c- countries which had the most American troops in, in 1950. Now, what are the odds that in 1950 in uh, t- uh, 2020 we have basically the same grand strategy needs? You know, I think the odds of that are very very small. You know what 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 did the better explanation is basically that the you know the you know government never never almost never shrinks. I mean, when once government starts doing something, it, it tends to keep doing it unless something unusual happens. And so we went to these countries, and we've been basically making up reasons to stay ever since. We didn't leave Japan when we you know we were supposedly optimistic about China becoming a democracy in the 1990s, and now of course we can't leave Japan today because you know China's China is uh, uh, too strong, and the Soviet Union collapsed, and we couldn't leave Germany then. Now we can't leave Germany now. Um, yeah, I mean, Italy, I nobody even bothers to explain. I mean, we just forgot that, you know, we have a lot of troops there. Um, so yeah, n- none of it is, you know, inertia is another important part of the, uh, uh, the understanding because basically it's, it's easier to, Keep something going than to change. I mean, public uh, public opinion is you know has a very uh, strong bias towards the uh, status quo, just the way people think about these things. So if you're if you're a sort of a uh, if you're the military industrial complex, if you're the weapons manufacturers, or if you're the Pentagon, you're gonna try to sell people on continuing to do what you're doing rather than to do new things. You're not gonna say you know take we want to take out the troops out of Italy and send them uh, to Morocco uh, because it's you know you're gonna it's just uh, you're going with the grain if you just uh, if you just uh, advocate for maintaining the status quo and I think that's what we've been doing for a very long time and you know I, I, you know be interesting question whether in 30 40 years you know we're still our true presence is mostly still Germany Japan you know Italy and and uh, South Korea and we'll have new explanations as to why right so in other words just like in other areas of government when you create a constituency or a bureaucracy with an interest in maintaining that policy uh, it tends not to change at the end of the book, you reflect on the low probability that simply engaging more actively in the marketplace of ideas will will fix these problems, change foreign policy, uh, conjure a more um, consistent grand strategy. So, what's what do you think is required in terms of reforms that could undo or at least mitigate some of the influence of these concentrated interests? Yeah. So the, yeah, this is the last, this is the last chapter. And I, um, you know, I, I, the marketplace of ideas is important. I just don't think it's, it's anywhere near sufficient. And maybe if you're an anti-war activist, it's, it might not even be the, you know, the first place you'd, you'd start. So I have a, some smaller ideas, which is like maybe, you know, have some, uh, lobbying and disclosure requirements. You could do that. I don't know how much that would do, actually. Um, you know, I think I think the money will find a way to get to the people who they need to influence in some way or the other. Um, you know, and so I think I think that the real, I mean, I think that the real um, change here uh, can come from the top. So I think that you know, I, I think that the, the the status quo bias and inertia that we just talked about that can work in favor of um, anti-war types or anti-intervention types. Like the U.S. pulls out of Afghanistan, you know, the the people who want to be 
in Afghanistan. No, we're not going back. We're not going back no matter, basically no matter what happens. And all it took was a president to be there to, to say, we're going to pull out. And it, I think it's the same thing, you know, if the, the, um, if the occupation of Germany ended or the occupation of Japan ended, um, I think that it would be, uh, you know, nobody would just, that would just be very, very tough to undo. Um, same thing with sanctions, same things with, you know, with, with all kinds of things. Um, and so you have to, you know, I think that presidentially you should probably pay more attention to presidential politics um, than the marketplace of ideas or, you know, congressional politics. It's, you know, congressional politics is probably more hopeless because, you know, there's so many, you know, the, the power is limited and the power of any particular uh, individual to change and particularly change the status quo is almost, uh, is almost nil. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I think that, you know, if you had, say, somebody like uh, Trump, who was a little more focused and a little bit more consistent in his preferences about Amer what American foreign policy should be doing, he would have to say, he would, you know, he wouldn't be able to go as far as he wanted because Congress would push back. Um, but, you know, partisanship is very strong. And I think if a president was, you know, consistent in his messaging and really wanted to change American foreign policy, um, he could. So, you know, if you, if you, if you would ask me, what is the way we are, we have a significantly um, uh, less of a, a footprint uh, overseas, say 20 or 30 or 40 year, uh, years from now, I'd say it have to be, it would have to be that route. It would have to be somebody getting elected on maybe under unusual circumstances, somebody like Trump, who, but who has, you know, different, uh, you know, different level of competence and focus, or just somebody who's an ideological libertarian or ideological socialist or whatever, and then just changing things. And then that becomes the new status quo. I think that that's, uh, you know, that's probably, you know, politics, politics matter <laughs> to the extent that it's like, to the extent that my book is about, um, you know, concentrated interests are going to do what they, what they do. Um, the answer is sort of the opposite of that. And that there's going to have to be somebody with, uh, the ideology and sort of the political commitments to change things. Richard Hernani, thanks for taking the time to talk today. Thanks, John. It's been a pleasure.